Well, welcome to week two of our new Sunday school class as we're moving through First Peter. Uh, so for those who weren't here last week, uh, Pastor Ron, Pastor Rick, um, Will and I are going to be teaching verse by verse through First Peter for the next few months. And it is exciting and we are amped to be able to do it. Um, it's a great book um, and so we're excited to be able to lead through this um, so I want to give sort of uh, uh, an, an overview of uh, what Pastor Ron taught on last week to sort of lead us into the next few verses. So again, we're in 1 Peter, um, and Ron covered in, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and I'll be doing 3 to 5 today. So as Pastor Ron mentioned last week in his intro, much thought was given to going through this letter as we find ourselves in a time of persecution uh, now and on the horizon. Uh, we all suffer and suffer persecution in this life. It's not uncommon. And while we suffer, we're, call, we're called to stand firm in grace and in the faith. That's the main theme of First Peter, suffering and standing firm in grace. Pastor Ron last week gave some background on Peter as an apostle and witness to the sufferings of Christ. We saw that the recipients are elect exiles, and he made uh, some connections and brought out that uh, this, this letter was written to uh, Gentiles and uh, Jews. It, it, was, it was for both, right? Both were recipients of Peter's writings here. Um, and specifically, how Peter describes the Gentiles in this letter seems to be consistent with including them as recipients. So we looked at 1 Peter 1, 14, uh, chapter 1, 17 to 18, Romans 9, and a few others. But you'll notice if you're at 1 Peter, um, if you're turned there, that he closes this salutation or greeting with grace and peace. Um, we have been given this grace and peace, and we'll talk about that in a sec. Um, that, that leads us into verse 3, which is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're not there already, turn to 1 Peter as we continue to work through this, this chapter in this book. All right, so the eulogy of verse 3 marks a distinct transition from the salutation of the letter to God as the source of covenant benefits. So I'm going to use a football analogy. So it's almost as if Peter plants his foot, pivots, and takes off in the direction of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that exact same phrase in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and Ephesians 1, 3. So let me have someone, you want my reading this for 2 Corinthians 1, 13, I'm sorry, 1, 13, not 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Thank you. And then Ephesians 1, 3, someone over here started reading. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Thank you. So you see that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This seems to be common language for the apostles. So Peter begins with the theme of the entire paragraph. God is to be blessed and praised for the salvation he has given to believers. Peter doesn't waste any time getting to the default heart position of one who has received mercy. And what is that heart position? What is that posture? It's praise to God. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father is the fount from whom all blessings flow, as the famous hymn says. Um, and every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, as James 1.17 says. It is God the Father who foreknows and elects us. It is the Father who predestines us for adoption. We see that in Ephesians 1, 3 to 7. It was in the Father's love for us that Jesus died on the cross, John 3, 16. Peter's words here, along with James 1, 17, and so many other scriptures should lead the Christian to take Jesus God as their God and Jesus Father as their Father. Peter says to them and to us, you have as your father God himself, which is just mind-blowing and super encouraging. Lift your head to the heavens and praise God. Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But why? Do, are we praising God because he bends over on his high and holy throne and gives ear to our prayers? Well, yes, but I don't think that's exactly what Peter has in mind here. Well, why then? Because he provides food and clothing daily? Absolutely. But I don't think that's exactly what Peter has in mind here. Well, why then? The reason that God is to be praised is explained. Because he has caused us to be born again. And this leads to the next point on your sheet there, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Um, I'm referring to your note sheet. If you don't have one, they're in the back. I think Will passed them out earlier, so everyone should probably have one. But if you don't have a note sheet, it's in the back, on the back table. All right. So the next point here, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So the term here, I'm going to say, I'm going to try to pronounce this right, this Greek word, Greek word uh, anagoneo, I think it is, used for to be uh, born again in um, verse, verse 3 there, isn't found anywhere else in the Bible except verse 23 of the same chapter. So it has in mind uh, re-begetting or begetting, again in verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. That's where we're at. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That's verse 23, same book, uh, same words used there. The begetting by seed really takes us back to the Father as the initiator. He is the only, he's the one uh, re-begetting children by the seed or the word of God. But just as I was going through this, I thought about that. The fact that by the word of God, we are saved. So a person is born again. The state of his soul is changed. His eternal dwelling is changed. He's raised from the dead. And this comes through the speaking of words, the gospel. Is that, that that's just crazy to me. Like, no other words has the power to change a man's eternal state and standing before God, except the words of the gospel. And it is those words that have raised us to newness of life and raised us from our spiritual 
deadness. That's just amazing to me. Um, but rant, back to the point, which is no one can take credit for being born again. That's clear there. We are born again by the seed, the word of God, and it's not on us. It's not our own doing that causes one to be born again. Your salvation is something that happened to you, not something that you produce. Um, and praise God that that's true. Okay? That's why it's according to his great mercy. It's the mercy of God that saves a man from the wrath that he deserves. Every believer deserved judgment and wrath, but God in his mercy and grace has set his affection on those who were spitting and waving their fists at the heavens. He has caused us to be born again, and it's by his mercy. And all of us were there, and it may not have been outwardly, but it was definitely inwardly that we were hostile toward God. Our default depraved disposition by nature is that of aggressive hostility. Um, I was just recently writing, uh, I write poetry and I write songs. I'm not a rapper, but I like to write. And um, I was writing and in this poem I wrote that all of us by nature are depraved and fallen. God saved some of us from uh, dice games and uh, crack pipes. He saved some of us from pursuing college apart from his glory, right? So it doesn't matter where you are, all of us by nature have a hostile disposition towards God. We can be in school pursuing school and doing well, but as I said in the poem, we may be doing well, but we're also pursuing hell. All of us are on the same level, the same natural heart disposition before the Lord, and that is a position of hostility. So we gotta go low to look up to see grace that comes from the one who sits on high, right? And lest we forget, let us be reminded by Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. How? and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So he didn't just pardon us and sort of let us off the hook, God. He dressed us in the righteousness of his own son, Jesus, and you are now seated with him in heavenly places. Okay, so this is, he has caused us to be born again, that's what's happening there, right? Dead men are being raised, and it's by the power and the mercy of God, right? <clears throat> any, any thoughts on that before I jump to my next, next paragraph here? Just thinking of how, you know, the, our first birth warrants us justice from God because of our union with Adam. Right. And, you know, as I think about that aspect of, you know, according to his great mercy, his great pity, uh, his act of not giving us what we deserve, um, you really get your mind around that, and it does just floor you. Right. That, that God would act that way toward me, not giving right. me what I deserve, but intervening, and he's going to go on here, at what cost he intervened. Right. So it just 
really helpful when I think about my first birth and what that means for me, and this aspect of he's saying something great about this mercy and me being born again. So why is it so great? Right. Of what I deserve. Right. My nature. Yep. Um, yep. And I think when we grasp that, it explodes grace and mercy to be right. something magnificent. As right. Right. And that does become the default, the, the, the position and posture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yep. Any other thoughts? All right. So continuing here. So we're at verse, verse 3. Um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Notice here also that Peter says we're born again to a living hope. Born again to a living hope. So why do you think he emphasizes that this hope is a living hope, that it's alive? I'll just throw that out there. As he could have just said, we're born again, right? But he says we're born again through a living hope. Why do you think he says that? <clears throat> Did anything come to mind? Well... Absolutely. He is risen and he is alive right now. Well, well said. So a living hope sits in contrast to a dead or dying hope, right? And Paul actually describes pagan religion and philosophy in this way as dead or dying or hopeless. Give it a sec to long. Or let me have someone just go to... First uh, Thessalonians 4.13, and then someone else go to Ephesians 2.12. All right, so let me have someone read Ephesians 2.12 for us, and then who else, whoever was at First Thessalonians, you can read that. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers Having no hope and without God in the world. And then 1 Thessalonians 4.13. So we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others, as others do, who have no hope. All right. So you see this, uh, Paul uses this, uh, and he uses it in reference to those who are who are not known by God and those who practice uh, pagan religion and philosophy. They have no hope, but it's not so for us. We have a living hope. So the suffering Christians in Asia Minor that Peter was writing to did have hope. And why is that? Because of what was coming to them in the future. And I'll explain that a little bit. Uh, the same God that kept and sustained them then also promised a future redemption and hope. So as I was reading through this, I kept thinking of uh, what's probably my third favorite passage in the New Testament after Jude 24, 25 and 2 Corinthians 5, 21. <laughs> and it's a verse in the same letter, actually in the same chapter, and it's verse 13 in ch chapter 1 in 1 Peter. He says, therefore, Preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully in grace. Is that, is that weird? <laughs> 
set your hope fully in grace. Not in what you've done, not in what you will do, not in your wisdom, not in your good looks, not in your education. Set your hope fully in grace. The Greek word there for fully is uh, teleos. Uh, this is the only place it's found, and it means uh, perfectly or completely or without wavering. Set your hope fully in grace. Now, how can Peter call them to set their hope fully on grace? Well, their confidence is not uh, in the weak, groundless superstition that Paul calls out in Ephesians 2.12 that we just looked at. Their hope is not in uh, trending philosophy or Dr. Phil's latest Road to Peace and Hope five-step program. Listen, the object of their hope is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, uh, the God-man, the one mediator between God and men. And he is alive, as Will told us, and therefore we have a living hope. Um, so again, a living hope in contrast to a dead and dying hope. I, I said this in our uh, Christology class a few times, I would mention it, that we do not have a savior or a king that's in the grave. He's not dead, he's, he's alive. And that stands in contrast to every other religious system or line of thinking that has a Messiah. No, there's only one and he is alive and he is enthroned now. And that's where our hope rests. Any, any thoughts on that? That's just super encouraging to me. You can say, amen, brother. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, where am I at before I lose my place here? So let's jump to uh, the, next, the next point here in our handout. So we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the Christian hope is uh, everlasting because Christ, the ground of that hope is everlasting. Uh, the present reality of the Christian's life is defined and determined by the reality of the past. What is that? The resurrection of Christ. And it's guaranteed in the future because Christ lives forevermore. He is currently enthroned. Matter of fact, he's making intercession for us. Even now, currently, we're in this room. Christ is enthroned and making intercession for us. Each one of us, known by him. That's huge and, again, encouraging. Um, so you have to ask yourself, and I would ask this to you, and again, I sort of talked about this a little in the Christology class, is the resurrection of Christ. So we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First Peter 1, 3, the end of uh, verse 3 there. Is the resurrection in your mind on uh, the back burner? Well, let me, I'll, I'm going to take it from the back burner of your mind, the resurrection. I'm going to put it on the front burner. I'm going to turn the dial to 10 and say that he was raised for your justification. That's Romans 4.25. Raised for your justification. So usually when we think about salvation, um, we, we think about the fact that uh, Jesus had a sinless life, virgin birth, sinless, sinless life, uh, fulfilling all righteousness in his perfect life. He's crucified, 
he dies, um, he was raised, he ascended, and now he's in heaven. But Romans 4.25 is huge. Again, he was raised for your justification. Um, and that should help us to think. And I, I put it like this. The, just the resurrection of Christ is the hinge on which our salvation turns. He's raised for our justification. Right? And it is the basis of the Christian's hope. Their hope and our hope is the hope of the resurrection. Uh, therefore, not to be insensitive or to trivialize suffering, but whatever sufferings the Christian faces in this life is not worth being compared to the blessings of the future resurrection. Right? Does, does that encourage you? It, it should encourage you. It's not worthy to be compared. Um, I, I use this analogy in the past of uh, our sufferings in this life, though dark, heavy, um, and gruesome at times, is like having a feather that's barely floating down and bringing it over to a scale and saying, let's weigh it. Let's see if the little needle moves on the scale. Um, again, not to trivialize suffering, but that just amplifies the glory that's coming the glory of the resurrection and the inheritance that's been promised to us, right? That's, that's the hope of the Christian. We have that hope in Christ, and it is in the resurrection, right? All right, I'm going to move on to verse 4 here. Um, the resurrection, so we have hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. So you can't describe the future hope of believers better than this. Peter uses this language of inheritance to describe what's in store for Christians. In the Old Testament, the inheritance is the land God promised to his people. And you see that in scriptures like Num Numbers 32, 19, and Deuteronomy uh, 2.12, 2.9, Joshua 11.23, and so on. so on. We're going to read uh, a couple of them. Nobody even told me that this was black. All right, uh, someone go to Numbers 32.19 and then Joshua uh, 11.23. Numbers 32.19 and Joshua 11.23. While you turn there, I'm going to plug in my laptop here. And whoever uh, wants to read Numbers, just call out I. And whoever wants to read Joshua, you can call out I. In Numbers 32, 19. All right. And then who wants Joshua? Sorry. I'll read Joshua. Okay. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Thank you. What was the verse in Joshua? Joshua 11:23. You're welcome. All right. I'll get my laptop back up here.
All right, so an inheritance of land in general was a major source of increasing one's wealth, social status, and security. So the inheritance of land played uh, a role in both the Greek and the Jewish world, which makes sense as Peter is writing to both, uh, both of them as his audience. Um, Peter knows that, that it has this role, it plays this role. So his teaching about the nature of their new inheritance calls to mind a comparison of the new land in which they hold an inheritance. And what is that? It's their share in the kingdom of God. Peter didn't understand inheritance in terms of a land promised to Israel anymore, but in terms of an end-time hope that lies before believers. The hope is still physical, but we learn from 2 Peter that it will be realized in the new heaven and the new earth. I'm going to read 2 Peter 2, 3, 13. I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3, 13. Uh, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, Paul's view of the inheritance was similar to Peter's. The inheritance is the eschatological hope of believers. We see that in Galatians 3.18, Galatians 4.30, Ephesians 1.11, and Ephesians 5.5. Right, I have a PowerPoint for Ephesians 5.5, if I can get this working again. Um, or someone could just turn to Ephesians 5.5. 5. <laughs> for this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ your I'm sorry, let me have you read it again. <laughs> For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, thank you. And the author of Hebrews has a similar idea, saying that the patriarchs ultimately hoped for a heavenly country and city. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, uh, Old Testament, uh, Israel, saints in the wilderness, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they have been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to, call, to, to be called their God, for he has prepared them for a city. Okay? So I think the point here is that these saints under this persecution were sojourners and aliens in this world. I think Ron alluded to that last week. They suffer now, but the arrow of their hope shoots to the future inheritance. This inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. 
Peter uses words like this a few times in his letter, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The word imperishable actually means exactly what it says, right? Easy work for the translators. Uh, it means uncorrupted, not liable to corruption or decay. Literally, can never perish, right? Then the words undefiled and unfading, they all have a similar meaning here. Peter uses them in contrast statements. Uh, I'll put it that way, contrast statements. And here are a couple of, of uses. Um, <clears throat> that went, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and idolatrous. Oh, wait a minute, that's not it. Sorry, <laughs> wrong passage, that's later. Keep that in mind though. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, I'll just read that one. <clears throat> 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Not with imperishable things uh, like silver or gold, contrasted, but with the precious blood of Christ, right? Perishable, imperishable, perishable, imperishable. Um, and then verse 23 there as well in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Contrast statements, perishable, imperishable. First uh, Peter 3, 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So right before that, external adornment, braiding of hair, putting on of jewelry, clothing, whatnot. Not that that's a bad thing, that's, that's not what he's saying there, but it's a contrast statement. That's, that's external, that's limited, that's temporal, but the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Contrast statements. So the inheritance for the new covenant people of God cannot spoil. It's undefiled, which is actually the same word used when speaking of the sinlessness of Christ in Hebrews 7.26 and Hebrews 13.4, which is where I was going. Okay, so again, undefiled, <clears throat> where am I at? Undefiled, same word used uh, in, in these areas and speaking of the sinlessness of Christ. So let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Hebrews 7.26 For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, same Greek word used as undefiled in our passage, separate from sinners and exalted above the heavens. <clears throat> so, our inheritance is unfading. It will not fade. Uh, and Pastor Ron brought out last week that these elect exiles were exiles according to God's foreknowledge. So continuing to move through this here. Uh, they were foreknown by God and are exiles on this earth because their ultimate citizenship was in heaven. So Peter uses here the same passive language. At the end of verse 4, the inheritance is kept, past tense, in heaven for you. Again, to an inheritance, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
right? Any, any thoughts on that before we move into verse 5? Right, everybody still with me? Yeah? All right. So, this inheritance kept in heaven for you, um, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. I just clumped these uh, together, verses 4 and 5, just took them as a whole. We're just going to walk through them as a whole, okay? So, Peter's use of words here suggests that uh, though heirs of the promised inheritance may live in a dark and dangerous time, the power of God himself watches over them. So, the receiving of our inheritance, our inheritance is a sure thing, as solid as a rock, and Peter wants his readers to feel the weight of that. And where does this confidence come from? Well, uh, the fact that we are being guarded by God's power, we're being protected and shielded by God's power. The word guarded is used of putting uh, garrisons or troops in a city to protect it. That's what's in mind there, right? So this same word is used in a few other places in the, in the New Testament, and we're going to read those two other places, uh, or two of those few. So someone go to Philippians 4, 7, and then someone else go to 2 Corinthians eleven thirty two. So Philippians 4, 7, and then 2 Corinthians eleven thirty two. So again, we're going there because I want to show you that this word guarded is used. I want to show you how it's used with this sort of military um, idea of putting troops to defend a city. Um, so Philippians 4, 7. Who's there? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, well, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, similar to what we're looking at in First Peter. Um, but you see more of this military language in 2 Corinthians 11.32. Whoever's there, you can go ahead and read it. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Eratos the king was guarding the city of the Damascus in order to seize me. Okay, he was guarding the city. Same word. That's what's in mind there with our salvation being guarded. It's, it's this troops set up to protect this, this city, they're defending the city. We're being guarded by God's power, kept by God's power. <clears throat> All right, where am I here? So you, you feel the weight of that term that, that Peter uses, this word guarded. Now, you might say, and this is a valid question and thought, in light of the context of 1 Peter and the fact that Peter's writing to Christians suffering great persecutions how is God protecting them, right? That's, a, like I said, a valid question. Um, we know that we're not exempt from suffering and persecutions. Those saints in Asia Minor were not exempt either. And so and as I was working through this, I thought about places where our, the suffering of the Christian is, I mean, it's a guaranteed thing. Persecution is guaranteed. Second uh, Timothy 3.12 reminds us, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will suffer persecution or will be persecuted. So Peter says God's guarding us and he uses this military language to communicate that while at the same time 
were suffering persecutions. So that seems to be contradictory. How does that work itself out? Now, before I answer that, I want to sort of go off on another uh, written in rabbit trail. We often say that uh, saints and foreign countries are suffering life-threatening persecutions, but we're not really suffering at all. Um, I think I get what we're saying when we communicate that, um, but let's consider this. Um, I'm going to have someone read 1 Peter 1.6. Someone read 1 Peter 1.6, just a few verses down there. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay. You have been grieved by various trials. The word here translated trials is the same word found in the Lord's, the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation. In Matthew 6.13, the word for trials is translated temptation in Matthew 26.41 and Mark 14.38. Both have the exact same reading, so we'll just read one here. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptations. The same word trans translated trials in our, our passage in 1 Peter. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, Right? So I, I want to make that point so that you don't, we, we don't stand at a distance and say, well, that doesn't uh, apply to us, and we shouldn't take it to apply to us. And they're suffering you know, heavy persecution, but we're not. Um, well, it, it does apply, um, I think. And if you're a Christian, you're going through trials. Uh, it may be external and coming at you, or it may be internal and battling in you, but it's there. Off the rabbit trail, back to my point here. Um, as we're starting, <clears throat> I'm sorry, as we start to bring this uh, to a close, I want to pose a question. Back to my question. How does God guard Christians while at the same time they're suffering heavy persecutions? So Peter must have in mind here, and I think this is the answer, that God preserves believers so or in such a way that they receive their final inheritance, the joy of eschatological or end times salvation. So God guards them by making sure that they make it to the end to receive their promised inheritance. Keep in mind, uh, as we consider this guarding, that it is through faith as well, as we continue to move through this. So he's guarded. I think it's pointing to an eschatological uh, salvation, but we're guarded also through faith. Uh, in verse 5 there, God in his wisdom has also purposed to involve the human being as they exercise faith to receive the final salvation. So again, thinking about being guarded through faith, faith here is simply continuing trust or faithfulness. So Peter doesn't have in mind here faith as an isolated act. Genuine faith will actually persevere unto the day of redemption. Okay, you guys, y'all with me? So, by God's power, we're being guarded, military term, through faith. As we think about this, we have to understand that God's protection is not separate or a separate compartment from our believing. Okay, so don't stone me yet, but walk, walk with me through this. 
So again, all of 1 Peter shows that we're not exempt from suffering or even death because of God's power, since we actually do experience persecutions. God's power doesn't shield us from trials and suffering, but it protects us from the one thing that will show that we were never an heir to the inheritance. And what is that one thing? Unbelief. The sin of unbelief. Basically, God's power is the means by which we continue believing his promises. I hope, I hope I've connected that well. I'm trying to connect it. I want you to see it. He is keeping us. He is the sure hope for us. Um, that, that hope of that life to come, uh, the believing of the Christian is kept and rooted in and grounded in and driven by God's power as we believe. Okay, so where am I here? <clears throat> oh, okay, this is where I'm, sorry, I lost my place. So this is why it's a guaranteed hope. Peter lifts the reader's mind to the things that are above, as Colossians 3 puts it, those things that um, are in heaven, kept for us, uh, waiting for us, that will be revealed at the last time when Christ comes back for his elect. So we will absolutely receive the inheritance uh, the future salvation. Why? Simply put, because God will protect us through his power by sustaining our faith. This is he sustained their faith to the end, right? So is anybody thinking about the scripture I'm thinking about here? I, I sort of default go to Philippians uh, 1.6, um, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Um, and that is the hope of the believer. The inheritance is a sure thing. It's coming. We're kept by God's power, guarded through faith, not forgetting he sustains our faith in him as we persevere to the end. All right. <clears throat> so with that, that's, that's all I got for us today. Hope it was, uh, hope, hope you got the connection uh, and saw that. I wanted you to feel the weight of that. Um, and I do pray that our hearts are encouraged and that we continue to hope fully in the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. And may we be found then and now uh, giving praise, honor, and glory to God, which Lord willing, Pastor Rick will walk us through next week on verses 6 to 12. All right. So, any thoughts before we close out in prayer? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I would back up and then um, see if I can look at the whole, the scope and uh, allow sort of scripture to interpret scripture for us. So I'm thinking when I hear that, I'm thinking that um, I'm thinking of first John and making a, a practice of sinning. So I, I think what, what he's getting at there is not that um, you have a lustful thought and then 
fall away or you lose the inheritance. If that was the case, you know, in many ways, all of us sin every day. And so we wouldn't have a secure inheritance. But I think it's a communicating that if you continue uh, in this, in sexual immorality or lawlessness or covetousness or whatever it is, you show that you haven't really been born again. Um, and so it's not you're saved, you do this, and then you fall away. But doing that proves that you were never in the faith in the first place. And I get all of that thinking from First John. Um, so whether it's the sexually immoral or whether it's those who um, practice, uh, whether it's a homosexual, homosexuality, adultery, liars, all have their place in the lake of fire. Um, that's not speaking of uh, the Christian who's been uh, uh, kept and is striving to fight sin. I think that's speaking of one who practices that, practices that and shows that they were never in the faith in the first place, which is why they could have a place in the lake of fire. Now, I don't want to say that, you know, and say that we shouldn't be um, warned and on guard. Uh, I think that's a great encouragement to be fighting sin. Let no root of bitterness come up within you. Be on guard to cut down any uh, sin that may rise up in you. But I think the terminology that's as strong as have their part in the lake of fire speaks not of those who are saved, but those who by their sin show that they were never saved. Uh, anybody else can add to that if you have any, any other thoughts? Ms. Peru? Oh, good stuff. Who said that? Oh, I thought you said Florence. <laughs> Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, I was thinking of uh, Galatians, <clears throat> Galatians five, um, uh, somewhere in sixteen. Like every time they list, they have a list of all all the negative or all the all the fruits of uh, the flesh, like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. It's usually in contrast to to the Spirit. So when I look at Galatians 5, uh, let's see, 522, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, against such things there is no law. Like right before that is the list of uh, all the works of the flesh. So I think um, like Paul lists these things in contrary to the fruits of the Spirit. And that goes to show what produces from what, you know. Um, sometimes we think, okay, that's the list. If you're counted among that list, then, then it doesn't matter if you are saved. You know, you're still counted as someone who will receive condemnation. But I think, again, when, when they do it that way, where they contrast works of the flesh and works of the spirit, it, it's just that. It's just uh, if you live according to the flesh, you, you're condemned. If you live according to the spirit, you're it proves that you have genuine salvation. Right. Right. Just evidence. Yep. That's a good question, though. <laughs> All right. Any other? It's interesting that right after it says, <clears throat> let us also keep in step with the Spirit, it says, let us not become conceited. Hmm. So in other words, don't, you should not become boastful because... Spirit right. God. Absolutely. Yeah. As as we mentioned before, when you realize and, and Ram, you know, mentioned when you realize what you're saved from, um, you have a you 
it should cause a posture, a low posture that, that looks up to the heavens. Um, and we, we can't have this sort of, I'm, I'm better than you, or you commit that sin, I commit this sin, I'm good, but you, you know, for you, that's, that's really bad. Um, no, like, your sin, you're, you were saved from hell, not like a worse situation, not some, you know, lower level of living. You were saved from hell, which points to the weight of your sins. Um, whatever it was, so, yeah, yeah, it's a great point, so, all right, well, I'm gonna pray, and I'm actually on time, that's encouraging, all right, um, let's pray and close out.